0: potential, and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, uh, helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Mindy Howard, uh, future astronaut uh, and founding director and lead trainer of Inner Space Training, uh, an organization focused uh, on psychologically and physiologically preparing commercial astronauts for their space flights, uh, including psychological acclimation to different phases of flight, as well as uh, optimizing for various conditions, creating peak performance, peak experience in space. Uh, she also serves as the Director of Interspace Training at Blue Abyss Diving, which is a really unique human physiology and space sector research training and uh, development facility uh, with one of the world's deepest uh, diving pools. Uh, Dr. Howard obtained her Bachelor's uh, and Master's of Science in Industrial Engineering uh, at SUNY Buffalo and uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst respectively, and her PhD in industrial engineering from the uh, Technical University Eindhoven in the Netherlands. Uh, And after obtaining her PhD, uh, she applied to NASA and was placed uh, on NASA's highly qualified astronaut candidate list. she began her career in the uh, in the private sector at Royal Dutch Shell Group of companies, uh, held several uh, technical and leadership roles there, including uh, responsibility for creating strategy and leading implementation globally across areas of sustainable development, social performance, environment, and carbon dioxide management in their gas and power division. Uh, she's also served uh, as corporate responsibility manager at Aramco Overseas, uh, part of the Saudi Aramco Oil Company, as well as a sustainable strategy manager uh, at Ajan. Uh, The Dutch multinational life insurance company. Uh, Dr. Howard has also written numerous publications uh, on various topics including human factor uh, design of cabins of spaceships, uh, expert systems to help pilots with fault diagnosis and quality of group decision making as groups undergo uh, several uh, tasks uh, in aerospace conditions. Uh, She successfully completed her certification of the National Aerospace Training Research Center suborbital sciences training program uh, which provides a uh, spaceflight physiology training for prospective suborbital scientists and astronauts, uh, ultimately wishing to fly experiments on upcoming uh, suborbital space missions. Uh, She's also a TEDx speaker uh, uh, with her recent TEDx talk, Train Your Fear Away Like an Astronaut, a guest lecturer at the International Space University, and she is the author of a book entitled Blast Off, Train Like an Astronaut for Success on Earth. Uh, A lot to talk about today, but Dr. Mindy Howard, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks,
0: Eric. Yeah, no, it, it's it's uh, it's great having you today, um, Mindy. I you know I'd love to start off uh, basically by handing you the floor for a little bit to to talk about your your early journey. Uh, if you could take us back uh, a ways to uh, you know everything from uh, where you grew up, uh, when you developed your interest in uh, STEM, and ultimately what got you interested uh, in industrial engineering. to Start off with, I think that'd be a great way to uh, to set the stage while we talk about.
1: Okay. <laughs> Um, Well, it sounds like a a little bit of a cheesy story in terms of how I was inspired to want to go to space. But most people have their dream of wanting to go to space because they've seen the lunar landing or something historic like that, some kind of romantic um, historical thing. In my case, um, it was romantic, but it was in a different way. I was in love with a six million dollar map. And um, that was a show in the early seventies. Um, Steve so Austin. Don't know. Steve Austin, <laughs> astronaut, man barely alive. We can rebuild him, yep. and so we have the technology. <laughs> um, and this, to me, he was he was the cutest thing ever. And I started to think, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could go to space with him, hand in hand, and fly around? And this was when I was about six years old. And I think that's actually where the idea originally started from uh, cheesy as it is. But um, then as I started to get a bit older, I was asking people, well, how does one become an astronaut anyway? And I had heard that, you know, usually there's there's two ways. You can either become a pilot um, or you can become a mission specialist where you would need to have like either a scientific degree or some kind of engineering degree. And I thought, okay, let's try to be a pilot first. So I rode away to the Air Force Academy in the States. So I grew up, you know, in New York um, and at that time applied to the Air Force Academy in the States. And I was told I was an inch too short, which I thought was kind of ironic, you know, that, that the Air Force couldn't make a chair to accommodate somebody who was five foot three at the time. So, um, it was a little bit of a dis- disappointment, but I thought, all right, well, I'm not gonna give up so easily. Let's try the scientific slash engineering route. And I then uh, thought, okay, well, I don't really know exactly what I want to do, but I had heard, for example, engineering is a good thing to study, but I was always very interested in psychology. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to actually study psychology, but I thought I need a technical degree So industrial engineering um, had actually had like the most people oriented, you know, type of engineering degree with a a heavy psychological focus. If you're talking about, you know, organizational design and efficiency, but also, um, uh, you know, other types of psychological stuff um, when you're talking about how people make errors and, um, and how to train them. Um, a lot of the roots of psychology and things about human behavior kind of come back into play when you're designing human machine systems. So I didn't even really know that much about engineering in general or industrial engineering. And I, but I just thought I heard about this. This is, you know, sounds like the most human engineering field there is. So I started to go through uh, my bachelor's in the States and um you know it was it it was hard for me the first two years of engineering school uh, because it was all these technical courses that i you know i had less affinity for but kind of survived it and then the last two years of my bachelor's i was able to kind of move in the industrial engineering um, area and that you know for me was a big change because i all of a sudden started to like the stuff that i was doing um, designing human machine systems and yeah and then got my bachelor's. at SUNY Buffalo and then went and got my master's at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Um, And then uh, I had heard, you know, I thought, okay, well, can I apply to NASA now? And people said, well, you still really need a PhD if you want to go and, um, you know, and have any chance whatever whatsoever of becoming an astronaut. So I thought, okay, how how long does that take? And uh, I was told in the States, it would be about six to 10 years. And I thought, whoa, that's too long for me, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> because for me, I was not really so much a researcher type, but I thought I need to do this um, to, in order to you know, give myself any chance of um, getting close to being an astronaut. So I thought, okay, well, isn't there another way I can do this that doesn't take six to 10 years? And someone suggested, well, like Europe, on average it takes about four years. Um, Mm. And I thought, okay, I need to go somewhere in Europe. Um, And then I started to apply to schools where I could do my thesis in English. And Holland was one of those places. And didn't know anybody in Holland. um, Didn't know any, yeah, didn't essentially know what I was doing. I just knew that it would be four years in the Netherlands. And I ended up getting um, funding, uh, full funding at the university, Technical University of Eindhoven, uh, where they said, come and do your PhD here. You'll be our first foreign female um, PhD student. You'll be an experiment. And, nice. and, and if it goes well, more women will be welcomed. And if it doesn't go well, it might not be the case. So I was sort of feeling like I had to survive this for the sake of womankind at the University of Eindhoven. But anyway, I ended up getting my PhD four years later with some major culture shocks along the way, um, you know, having to learn how to speak some Dutch. Um, and then I ended up uh, applying right away to NASA and then getting on there. I guess it's the last 200 people out of the thousands, and that's called their highly qualified astronaut candidate list, which is kind of close, but no cigar. So um, it's one of these, you know, you're told just keep applying every other year and, you know, and it could happen. So, but it gave me you know it was a, it was a bit of a disappointment because i thought at, you know at that time that was the only way to get to space was to essentially be like a nasa astronaut although when that didn't happen i thought what else can i do to increase my chances so maybe if i became dutch i could apply to the european space administration so go. i got my dutch citizenship the citizenship in 1995 applied to the european space administration but they were not taking astronaut candidate um, applications. So that was a bust. <laughs> so there I was um, potentially able to become an astronaut in two countries, but not yet becoming one at that point. So that's how I ended up coming over here um, to the Netherlands and then ended up you know, getting a great job working at the oil industry at Shell and seeing the world and working in 35 different countries. So. I never thought, uh, you know, I, I had to basically get a job on earth, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> and, uh, and I, uh, but I never forgot my dream, mm-hmm. and, uh, and until there was this reorganization in 2010, um, so I worked for them for 17 years, and uh, then they were asking for volunteers of who wanted to leave the company with some money, so I raised my hand, and then they said, oh, we'll also help you, Um, secure your next job with the training what do you want to do next and I thought this is my time to kind of own up to the dream again so I sort of looked at the career counselor and I said well what I want to do now is become an astronaut (laughs) and the career counselor thought oh that's so funny come on what do you really want to do and I said no that's really what I want to do And I managed to convince him to send me away to uh, the NASTAR center that you mentioned earlier where Mm -hmm. they have a centrifuge. Um, And in that centrifuge is where commercial astronauts learn how to physically withstand the high G-forces that they will get, you know, let's say these Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin flights. Um, And so essentially um, I took this course and Shell actually paid for it. Um, And I... It was at that point that I had seen, um, you know, some people were smiling from ear to ear in the centrifuge and other people had a look like this on their faces, you know, terrified. Um, And I thought, hey, that's interesting. You know, the the person, the least who I would think the the least likely um, guy who I thought would be scared was terrified. And then I started to think, hey, you know, aren't there courses out there to help kind of mentally train people to get less scared um did that exist and they said no that didn't and I thought that's something I think I could do with my background and then interspace training my company was born so it's a bit of a long story but a lot of things like um yeah I would never have expected that um you know I would get to where I was in the way that I did It's a little bit strange, but um, we could talk more about you know from that point on uh about into space training or anything else in the past but um, yeah it's it's a bit a bit of a strange story, but maybe uh, it was meant to be anyway
0: like no this. it's it's an awesome story actually it's um and you know y- y- you still <laughs> <laughs> you still have the passion for it to, and, and, and you know this uh, yeah so NASA does one thing you you look for, uh, at the ESA um, no I, I think it's um, I, I think it's an awesome story uh, and, and you know just it, it seems so um, you know exciting now obviously as we as you were just mentioning uh, commercial uh, this term commercial astronaut and you know um, I, I sit here like, like most people you know here I'm on the east coast of the United States I'll turn TV on, and, you know, what do I see? I see, you know, one of three faces you're just saying, you either see Elon Musk, you see uh, Richard Branson, or you see Jeff Bezos doing their thing. Um, and, you know, the first thing comes to mind, because, you know, I love movies about uh, space, you know, I watch the right stuff, or Apollo 13, and all this, and you see them doing the training and all that. Um, when you say commercial astronaut, and we come to things like SpaceX, and, and Blue Origin, and all that, um, is there... A- Are there a difference between – I mean, in terms of just the the training that we see in the movies and what you and other folks are getting people prepared for, whether it's to go up for an hour or whatever they're doing, um, is it the same thing? Or is there a degree of um, intensity, discipline that uh, hopefully we (laughs) – people like myself don't have to uh, totally – I guess I get in the centrifuge. It might kill me. But, but what's the difference between a commercial astronaut and what we conventionally uh, think of when we watch some of these movies?
1: Okay, I'll give you a little, a little uh, short course here. Um, but don't what, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> no, Please. but anyway, um, the so I I think it's good to make a differentiation between um, training for suborbital space or orbital space. So you okay. have. Your SpaceX people who are going to be um, going, for example, uh, either, you know, what we just recently saw with the Inspiration4 mission where they did um, orbits around the Earth, three Mm -hmm. orbits around the Earth. Um, These were civilians who had no training at all or didn't have any background in Mm -hmm. uh, being an astronaut. They um, had uh, a decent... Training um, for what they had to do in terms of what they were going to be doing um, for their three-day mission, um, but you'll have people who are going to be, let's say, using SpaceX to as, as a as a way to get to the International Space Station, um, who will be what some people would call more of a you know a proper astronaut, a, an agency astronaut, or somebody being sent like from NASA or from ESA. Um, these kind of astronauts will have you know a training. Which spans two to three years, where they will essentially have many different tasks that they need to do. Whether that's uh, fixing things on the space station or doing some sort of research of other people's experiments when they get there, that they first have to learn, kind of on Earth, you know, which buttons to push, how to go and operate whatever experiment it is, and then then they, when they go to space, they'll be doing the same thing. So um, you know, when you're doing when you're required to do a lot more um for these further away missions that will last longer than a few hours, um, you have a lot more training, including learning how to use the toilet, learning how to eat in space and a whole bunch of other things that you don't even need to think about if you're going on a suborbital flight, which you know if you're talking about Blue Origin, it's a you know a 10 and a half minute flight from start to finish. If you're talking about Virgin Galactic, it's a 90 minute start uh, trip from start to finish. So, um, and those two different spacecrafts are, are different. So um, in terms of the G-forces um, that go onto the individual astronaut or commercial astronaut. Um, but yet, in my opinion, um, it is you know, not uh, unwise to train yourself to with- learn how to withstand those physical G-forces on you and learn how to stay calm for your space flight. Because even if you don't have a mission, like um, doing some kind of research mm-hmm. on, let's say a Virgin Galactic flight. And by the way, there also are research, uh, researchers that will do um, experiments on these Virgin Galactic flights. So for that period of weightlessness uh, of four minutes, they will have to execute some kind of an experiment um, and they need to be able to stay calm and focused In order to do that, um, you know, the majority of the people that are going on these suborbital flights are going more for their own fun um, and enjoyment, Um, although they'll have different missions. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people might want to, you know, make a rock video uh, in space. Other people might want to do somersaults and, you know, show off and, you know, for their friends doing selfies. And others might just want to stare out the window and have the overview effect or this, feeling of oneness and connection um, with everything in the universe um, that so many astronauts have had. And so everybody has a different sort of mission, even on these suborbital flights and some missions are more challenging the other than others. So if you wanna do several things um, that are challenging and shove that into four minutes and be flawless ensure that, and ensure that you can execute that, mm-hmm. I think it's wise to get training. But at the moment, Um, these suborbital flights are, there's no regulations for these flights Mm. because um, the industry has heavily sort of um, lobbied, I think the FAA in the past, which said, you know, let's not kill the industry before it starts by having too many regulations. And now um, people can go to space without being trained at all. So um, what I expect is something in the future when they start to fly more regularly, That, you know, most people on your flight, because it's with five other people, so six people total fly together. Um, There's no uh, flight attendant, because that would take up an extra seat. And for commercial reasons, that's not, you know, you can earn more money giving that's making that a paid passenger seat. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's basically every person for themselves um, during the entire flight. Um, And it's so if somebody has a problem, tough. You know, and if somebody um, <laughs> freaks out and gets in your way and you don't know how to deal with it, tough. You know, you've signed a waiver and that's 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 the game now, you know, and it's, I think it's just going to take some incident or accident um, for some somebody to do somebody, to like somebody famous, like Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie, and then all of a sudden people say, hey, are there no rules that people have to get trained to go to sure. space? You mean anybody can go? I mean... William Shatner just went, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And he, even though he was admitted that he was frightened um, of going completely to space, he still, um, he still said that he wanted to do this um, and didn't get trained. And you saw the look on his face. I don't know if you saw it. I saw yeah, the it look on his face. Some crying. Um, you know, he, he was completely white and he looked not like he was enjoying himself. And afterwards he still managed to have this incredible experience where it sounded like he had the overview effect happen to him, but he could have had a much better time had he been able to stay calm so he could completely enjoy everything that was happening to him um, around him. So at the moment, it's, it's like, I, I kind of say that, um, you know, back in the day when, when people were still flying airplanes, like just starting the commercial airline industry, you know people were allowed to smoke, there was no seatbelts, you know. It was it was it was like that, and you know, mm-hmm. in the 50s until things like accidents started happening, and then regulations started happening, and people said, "Hey, maybe we shouldn't smoke on planes and <laughs> uh, and and wear some seatbelts and have some safety briefings." And and then the industry changed. So let's hope it doesn't take that long for the industry to change uh, for the commercial spaceflight industry because let's say for the suborbital part of the spaceflight uh, industry, those regulations are not there. So people do not have to have any training, Hmm. which is astounding to me, but um, I don't think that will happen for too long. I I cannot imagine that, you know, things aren't going to be hitting the fan um, very quickly.
0: Sure. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to be told tough <laughs> when I go up if someone's freaking out. So yeah, I, uh, hopefully um, we'll, we'll we'll move that needle a little bit. Um, maybe
1: we'll see.
0: Ya. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. You know you've, you founded uh, interspace training you also uh, direct um, interspace training at, at Blue abyss and and here you know you cover both psychological and and physiological uh, a range of issues um, that, that people will run into um, talk a little bit about what goes on what you do with both organizations and you know if, if, if I show up uh tomorrow and i'm like hey you know i I want uh i want to be trained for uh suborbital flight uh what's what's the program look like is there a program for suborbital flight Uh, can i get the uh, can i pay extra and get the mars package like uh, how does that (laughs) all work in terms of the different degrees of physiological and psychological uh stresses that will uh impact me depending on what ship i want to get on well
1: up until now there there hasn't been um like a commercial astronaut training center um, that had everything under one roof. You know, there was a place like NASTAR had, um, you know, it's centrifuge if you want to take a parabolic flight. There's a number of different parabolic flight providers. Um, interspace training is the only mental training at, for commercial astronauts uh, in terms of a pro tra- uh, space tra- training program that's out there. So there hasn't been anything under one roof yet. Um, Blue Abyss is the first company that, um, wanted to sort of have it all under one roof and they are just in their beginning stages of, um, mm-hmm. uh, building a facility, you know, and having the whole curriculum and everything be specified. So it's kind of in its infancy, um, although there's been a lot of thought that's gone in, um, by people who will be, you know, planning on working there in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so, uh, like at the moment, um, Blue, Blue Abyss doesn't have its doors opened. Okay. But when they will open, hopefully in about two years' time, their people can then select a number of different um, training programs. But if, you know, I, what I, what I would say for suborbital space, it's kind of like the, uh, the trifecta of space training, where um, you, you train for high G forces in a centrifuge. train for low g-forces or zero gravity in a parabolic flight, and your mental training which kind of underpins everything that you do. To me those three things are the minimal amount of training that one should have when doing a space flight. You can then add on other things in order like if the more um, if you were going to orbital space you know uh, you'd want to go and train underwater often in order to for example um, simulate the weightlessness environment um, while doing maybe a particular task underwater, and so Blue Abyss will be having this world class, you know, deepest pool, um, so that you know these sort of missions can be trained first underwater. And and I think Blue Abyss will also be, um, you know, opening its doors for these kind of professional astronauts to also train there because you know the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory at NASA. Um, they say, is not big enough for lunar and Mars training. So they're going to need a bigger facility. Um, You know, it it was adequate for what it was used for in the past, but now uh, with, you know, long-term space missions, you're going to need a bigger facility to train it. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if Blue Abyss also had these sort of activities um, also happening, um, you know, in the near future as well. But for for commercial astronauts, I think these three elements of high-G training in a centrifuge, low G, in a parabolic flight, and mental training is the minimum, and then you can add other things like survive, you know, survival training, sea survival training. So if you were to land um, in the water and you needed to get out of the spacecraft, like often spacecrafts will have a water landing, and you know you'll have mm-hmm. the helicopters come and sort of rescue the astronauts and get them out. But if they, for whatever reason, got lost or didn't. Um, have people arrive at the right time? You know, you need to be able to know what you're doing and how to get out and get, you know, um, save yourself. Mm-hmm. So these sort of trainings are important, and they're definitely done by these uh, professional astronauts. But sure. more and more in the commercial astronaut scene, you know, these other add-ons of training will, you know, will help give astronauts more self-confidence about they can handle anything that comes their way because you know, commercial astronauts, let's say you have to do the least compared to the professional astronauts, which have to do the most and know the most. So it makes more sense that they have the most training. But um, I think the more training you do, um, the more you feel like you can, uh, you, be, you become more mentally resilient and you can handle anything. Mm-hmm. And that is really what, you know, I think the right frame of mind to go when you're, you're going up into space because you know it's one thing to be able to control yourself the next level is to be able to sort of help people around you who might need help in a in a situation you know either you know an abnormal situation or an emergency and if you're just basically keeping your own stuff together Mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to help other people and so you know i think in in the future you know the the more you do and of these sort of experiences you know the better off and more self-confident you'll feel, and the more useful you'll be to others. So um, with the long-term space missions to, you know, to Mars,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, you won't have the assistance of people being able to fly in and rescue you. You're gonna yeah. have to be, you know, competent individuals to, uh, to save yourselves in whatever way that is, or to think about Things that haven't been thought about and how to, you know, how to turn your toothbrush into a wrench, you know, in order to fix something that. So this mental resilience, you know, will start to become more and more and more important the more complex your mission becomes, actually. The less and the less sort of um, help you can get from other people on the ground, you know, ground control, that sort of stuff.
0: Uh, along those lines, it just it is a side question. But um, Matt Damon's character in in, in The Martian um, is anyone ever trained at NASA to be that good? Uh, if they are left alone on Mars, I mean, does that type of training actually, or is that just you know Hollywood?
1: Yeah, no, I you know I can't. It's funny. I've seen the movie a few years ago, but now it's it's not coming up to me. What what exactly he did? Um, he was like a
0: botanist, remember. but I mean, he knew about everything else. He could you know do the, the hydrogen fuel cells and you know oh, yeah. everything. Right. He knew how basically right. figured out everything. And I was just wow, did they really train them that well? <laughs> or or is well, that...
1: It's funny. You know, it's funny because there are some, but uh, there are some differences between the Russians and the Americans um, okay. in terms of culture and how, how, you know, what sort of individual would be the best kind of astronaut. And I think in the past, NASA, um, you know, had in, NASA trained people on different scenarios um, and they came up with all sorts of scenarios, things that could, could go wrong, how they went wrong, and then would train people. And so <laughs> that in theory, astronauts, you know, um, or, or the training consisted of all the scenarios and trained over and over and over so that they would get used to anything that could come up. And the Russians were much more about improvisation, you mm-hmm. know, and that, you know, this Matt Damien sort of approach where you can, you need to be less, you know, more, uh, mentally resilient, but able to, you know, think about something come out sure. of the box as a way to save yourself. And I think, you know, just in terms of, um, types of people that they choose, I think that that is tra- the traditional Russian astronaut that can make the, r- the, the wrench out of a toothbrush and NASA would be first to call home and say, hey, ground <laughs> control, can you help? I need a wrench, you know? Yeah. Um, so there, there are some differences, some cultural differences and I'm not sure, um, you know, how much NASA is, is training this other sort of out of the box thinker. More, you know, some people could say there, you know, as long as you're trainable, you could become a NASA astronaut. And I think the Russians have, you know, a slightly different philosophy. As
0: Interesting. Far as Interesting. Yeah. Minnie, um, many uh- you know one of the things you know you and i chatted about before before the show uh we, we talked a little about the uh the twin study uh that was being done at nasa on, on the, the kelly twins and some of the the biologic differences and changes that they studied uh after i, I guess it was a year in uh on the international space station uh, sorry to keep coming back to hollywood but i, I think of the uh, uh john hertz character in um um that was the jodie Foster movie um yeah the, the one with the with the with the alien signals and all that. Anyway, so John Hurt's character is out there and he's hanging out on the space station because he has cancer and there's these unique properties of zero gravity. Um, we've been reading some stuff lately about uh, hyperbaric oxygen chambers uh, doing possibly beneficial things for people with Alzheimer's. Any interesting health related? uh either positive or negative that you see uh in some of these unique training scenarios that we might not hear about uh, uh in the common press but uh all right wow that's that's pretty cool or interesting psychological or physiological
1: i you know i'm i'm not um in that world as much as even in like in terms of hearing these these different types of studies i mean i have heard some studies about you know how horrible radiation is and and, and how you know people will suffer like men and women will suffer in different ways coming back from you know from space whether it's cancer or poor vision or mental capacity and Mm -hmm. you know and which sticks with certain types of individual individuals so i mean the radiation is still going to be the biggest dilemma of how we can get Mm -hmm. ourselves to be space-faring because you know our bodies are just not really able to to yeah to adapt to this this radiation so far so um yeah i don't um i you know, i I don't have any sort of clever bits of wisdom for you there yeah. but i mean uh yeah it's uh it's not it's not exactly my world it's more stuff that I read about in in the but, field um, yeah,
0: that's cool I was just wondering uh, you know because it's uh you know, it's uh, obviously not a lot of people go up to the space station and hang out that long, but and, and yeah, and the movie was Contact, by the way. I don't know why I couldn't pull that out of the Okay. Yarn, but, okay. Um Anyway, um, so talk a little bit about the book. Uh, the book uh, blast off, and you you're focusing uh, on on techniques uh, that you're learning and, and working uh, in terms of the commercial astronaut training, but uh, how some of this. Uh, physiological and psychological resiliency, emotional equilibrium, mental focus, uh, very useful for us uh, in our day-to-day lives here on on terrestrial (laughs) planet Earth. Uh, Talk a little bit about the book, if you would.
1: Sure, Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, going to space could be very much um, like, it's used as a metaphor for going on any kind of transformational journey Mm -hmm. um and that uh you know some problems that people that astronauts will have in terms of getting over any kind of fears or uncertainties about making the journey whether that's physical mental or other sort of limiting beliefs um Mm -hmm. you know that's the same as if we were going on some other kind of transformational journey here on earth so i think Mm -hmm. Um, when I started doing trainings, you know, inner space training, um, you know, there were there were people in my course that said, would say, you know, how come you're not opening this up for non astronauts? Because you know, this technique would be really good. You know, if I'm doing public speaking and I am shaking in my shoes and, and I need to be able to perform under pressure, and um, and I, after a while, I remember thinking, well, maybe I should, you know, open up the training to to non astronauts, and and so I did, and I, they they seem to get enough. You know, lo and behold, you know, they got a lot out of the training as well. Um, so uh, I thought about, you know, that idea and thought, you know what, um, it'd be great to write a book um, for anybody going on a transformational journey. Um, and because I took essentially the inner space training and the, the different tools and techniques that we give the astronauts and, and I apply them to everyday life to help people kind of um, not be afraid to dare to dream and to go and try, you know, to go and move in, you know, to accomplish what they would like to accomplish in life or to dream and actually live their dream. And sometimes, you know, it just takes um, people to understand, you know, to, you know, to get over their fear or to, you know, to get over their limiting beliefs and they'd be surprised what they can do. Mm-hmm. So the book is essentially, um, you know, those you know inspired by space um, and and space training, but it's it's as applied to um, you know everyday life and how we can go and accomplish our dreams here. And so the book, yeah. So it, it discusses a number of different techniques. Um, yeah, and some of the techniques are are you know are simple um, and uh, well depends they they're they're simple to learn and simple to use, and others use some neurofeedback technology. Um, which can be actually bought on the market, um, you know, where you can, I've seen it with, you know, uh, so often where people will say, um, you know, I'm claustrophobic. I want to fly, um, but I have fear of flying. Um, you know, I want to do this, but I, how do I get over this? And you can, using this uh, neurofeedback tool, um, it's called the bioacoustical utilization device, uh, yeah. otherwise known as the BOD. you um, the bod can be used to help people get over, um, yeah, fears. Um, actually, chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've used it on on my knee. I have I have some knee issues, and so um, I've seen it work on in so many different uh, instances because it's all kind of playing with the brain circuitry mm-hmm. of how f- pain and fear are all kind of like um, are wiring in the amygdala and the uh, in the emotional brain. And how we can, if we can, you know, disturb this, um, you know, this pain circuit or this fear circuit, we can, you know, we can be over the fear in, in a matter of minutes. And mm-hmm. um, it's so satisfying to see, you know, people, um, you know, use a device like this and 15 minutes later, they're able to get into a plane and fly, you know? So um, it's it's pretty amazing, um, you know, to see also how much we could, you know, use technology to help, um, you know, just sort of like these limiting beliefs and fears that we have and, and, and how quickly we can get over some of them. Um, so it's, yeah, I really enjoy doing that. Um, that's one of the techniques that we're using. Uh, yeah, in the tra- or that, that's actually sort of like an additional um, thing that I could do, additional technique with people who have special fears, but mm-hmm. within interspace training, um you know we're helping people first of all giving them information about what they can expect on their space flight in terms of telling them everything um that can happen um -hmm. what are the demands that you need to do so that will help reduce any kind of anxiety that they have but also um, how you define your own success uh and setting your intentions for your space flight so if you are um if you have a very narrow focus of this is what I want to accomplish, and it's got to have to look like this, um, and somebody's foot by accident comes your direction, in, you know, in zero gravity, you know, will you still be okay? Will you still accomplish your mission, or will this throw you off so much that you'll completely lose your whole, um, you know, your focus? Um, and how do you deal with unexpected things that happen? Mm-hmm. So first of all, defining success, if you have a wider definition, um, you'll have higher chance of having success. But if you have like, no, it's got to look like this, and it's got to have these elements, um, chances are high, you will not be successful. And that's the same, you know, in life as well, as soon as you have expectations, um, and a lot of, you know, specific expectations, you know, life will probably disappoint you um, more often than not. And Because if you just say, well, my intention is to, you know, is to fly to space and to do these things. And how it happens, I leave up to the universe, uh, but I have an open mind um, and everything is, is, is uh, enjoyment. That's a completely different sort of mindset so sure. that you're really setting yourself up for, for success versus like, uh-oh, it didn't happen in the way of, that it was this. And it also gives you the opportunity you know, to enjoy something that you might not have even thought about in life, Um, you know, something even better than you imagined. But if you define it only in this, you know, very rational way, you won't have that possibility of something even better. Mm. So I think expectation setting, um, you know, versus intention setting, you know, is really something people can learn and benefit from also here on earth too. And I hear myself sometimes when I have too many expectations and I I gotta cut and say no, 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 no. You know, I'm hearing myself speak about something, and I think, stop. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's do this. Let's think about this in a different way because yeah. I'll just be setting myself up for probably for disappointment. So having that mindset is is helpful in terms of a resilient mindset. So, um, and then we do a lot of um, learning about uh, like a mnemonic device called Babusa, which is standing for you know uh, different parts of like breathing, observing sensing and anchoring um, different types of uh, you know calm focused feelings when you kind of like practice this over and over, you start to get good at learning how to calm yourself and accepting things coming your way regardless of you know if it's what you expect or not um, and how to deal with it. and I think I think one of the biggest things that we talk about is is how to in inner space training is how to um, turn lemons into lemonade because mm-hmm. there's so it's so often that you're you know something comes out a right field and you're gonna have to respond and you have a choice and how you want to respond um, like hey wait this is not how we planned it um and then trying to fight the system and say you know i need to figure this out because it's not you know the way it was supposed to be yep. or to say oh look a lemon flying my direction like Let's go and see if we can incorporate that into um, what we're using right now and who knows maybe it it will become limited, so it's all kind of how you want to um, yeah deal with stuff that comes your way, and that's uh, like a life philosophy as well as a space, space flight um philosophy that that everybody can have I think
0: oh, that's awesome and, and opening up the hatch and throwing somebody out is never the. It's <laughs> never the acceptable option, so. Uh, <laughs>
1: you might want to on occasion, but um, yeah, sometimes yeah. we have to find other ways to deal with these yeah. kinds of
0: people. Exactly, exactly. Oh, Mindy, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is that, uh, while I have you here, I, you know, I, earlier on, I read through your your bio and, you know, you, had spent, you spent a lot of time in sort of this area of sustainable development, uh, the environment, carbon dioxide management and so forth. Um, and Obviously, the, the, the climate you know conference just uh, wrapped up. Um, as you think forward uh, with regard to the development of commercial space, and you know whether we have one SpaceX rocket up there or a thousand or wh- whatever is going to be happening in the, in the coming decades. Um, any thoughts on sort of uh, keeping that suborbital realm or? or above the suburb realm, sort of sustainable and healthy and not having a lot of space junk and, and so forth? Well, just give us a couple of minutes on that one, if you would.
1: Okay. Um, well, I would say uh, I very much have this environmental, sustainable kind of focus on yeah. how to do this kind of business responsibly, um, you know, or else I don't think we should be doing it. And at yeah. the moment, I'm not actually seeing lots of... Uh, commercial and non-commercial spaceflight, um, you know, operators, you know, dealing with it. Like they, they, you know, the way they're dealing with it is saying, well, you know, are the fuel that we use is, is not that pollutive, you know, mm-hmm. in fact, it's the same as a trip from New York to London, um, you know, but yeah, if you divide it by six people taking a flight versus 200 people, yeah. um, you know, your carbon footprint per person is actually quite high. So I, I think that, you know, these companies need to do more, in my opinion, um, to offset uh, the damage that they're going to be doing. Um, I don't think you can take a flight. You can you can justify taking a flight without, you know, at least offsetting the damage by tree planting mm-hmm. or creating, you know, different, you know, wind parks or, or whatever sustainable energy, um, you know, uh, project you want to support. I think there's got to be an active... Um, acknowledgement or, you know, an acknowledgement that, yes, we understand um, this is a not the most environmentally friendly way of, do, of, of you know, having an industry. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, space has inspired lots of environmentally friendly and um, technologies here on Earth. So I don't think we should ban space activities from happening. But I do think we need to, um, you know, we need to take you know, we need to start offsetting our flights. We need to have people, you know, I think it's like a privilege to go to space. And if you're going to, and yes, you might have the money to go, but if you go, um, I think you also need to do some environmental or social projects back on earth, like as part of your um, privilege to go, that you're going to, yeah, you're gonna to have to go and kind of pay the, you know, not just pay your money, but, but then make things better make the world better by, you know, your space flight. And that could be by supporting a number of different projects, environmental, social projects here on earth, because I, I just don't think it's, it's good enough to have a jolly. I think mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, I could see why people get pissed off, you know, say, you know, with all these, you know, people with money going. And, you know, if they think, it, you know, it's just a, you know, just a, another way to go and have fun without any kind of responsibility in it. So I I personally think um, that these companies need to, you know, set up programs, whether it's like environmental offsetting programs or social programs where, you know, you you can grow prosperity in other parts of the world that don't have it, um, that people have to, you know, take part actively in these environmental and social programs or else they're not allowed to go. I I mean, that's, that's how I, that's how I would do it. Um, And just, it's not good enough just to pay money. That's what I think. But I've, you know, I've tried to mention that idea to some people in the industry. And of course, you know, for commercial reasons, some companies don't want to yet adopt this, even though some individuals are doing this on their own within, you know, those, you know, those people are going, but I don't, it's not a systematic approach. And I think it needs to become systematic. So, so we can justify and say this is not only harmful. You know that this is also a force for good, mm-hmm. and it's using. You know, people are being transformed not just by the experience of being able to see the Earth from a different perspective, but actually, you know, use that to encourage change and um, and transformation both within yourself and back on Earth. So it's like a whole package of transformation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um and not just like a jolly from what and not yep. and not having really transformation that's
0: my opinion uh, no no that's awesome I, and as i I, if I was thinking about this question while you know as we you were talking and I'm, I'm glad that uh uh you had the uh, ability to uh, to give to give your input there because I, I think it's an extremely important uh, piece of the uh, the puzzle, especially in um, the unique world we we're entering in 2022 and and with climate change and and the environment being such a, a top of mind issue. So thank you, thank you for definitely um, yeah. participating in that. Um, okay, um, one other thing uh, before we wrap up, um, I too uh, was a major fan of the Six Million Dollar Man growing up. Um. So, uh, lightning round here. Um, and, and don't worry, I won't hold it against you if, if you don't know these, but uh, but you probably do. Um, uh, what was Steve Austin's boss's name?
1: Oscar Golden.
0: Okay, very good. Who played the cybernetic Sasquatch? the Cybernetic uh, Sasquatch. Yeah. Oh, the, the Sasquatch episode. Actually, there's two know. Sasquatch episodes. Andre the Giant. Yeah. Andre
1: the Giant, of yep. course.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Oh. And I,
1: um I could have known that. Okay. Okay. Next.
0: And and, and then obviously <laughs> what I always to think of back if if the six million dollar man fought the bionic woman, who would win?
1: I've thought about that. <laughs> uh, strangely enough, because they both had bionic legs.
0: Right. But,
1: um she had the she had the ears he had the eyes and i can't remember the arms uh he had an arm didn't he
0: he only had one arm but she had two arms so that's she i i two. personally think you know that that you know there you go that that's I, know. Uh, I
1: think i could she could hear she could hear him coming from a from a long distance you know so who knows like i don't know i was you know, I, I admired the bionic woman, but at the time I was jealous. Uh, and so I thought, you know, this like, you know, she was getting him and I wasn't. So uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah, I had kind of like double feeling about, about how, how great she really was. But now as an adult, I could make an assessment and say, yeah, she could probably take him.
0: Yeah. I, I thought we'd have more bionics by now, you know. Looking back to the 1970s and 2022, but oh, oh whatever. I still know.
1: I still wanted to become bionic. I mean, like I still do, but and now maybe with a new need next year that I might be getting, that'll be my new bionic need.
0: There you go. <laughs> well, Mindy, this is really uh, a fun time talking to you and and hearing your story. Um, it's it's been an amazing journey. Um, it's going to be uh can, you know amazing continue watching your journey um before that you go any stuff coming up in 2022 that you want to mention any conferences you're gonna be talking about new ted talks you're gonna be giving please if there's anything i missed uh please take the floor um
1: no i i don't yeah i don't have any offhand uh things that i've i mean there's not i haven't even seen anything for 2022 but yeah in the space world i mean there's a couple of key uh, conferences that are that come up and i'm hopefully we'll be part of them. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, just in a, a week's time, this Australian, um, conference, the ASBX conference, uh, is going to be happening. Um, so I've got to talk on that. Um, yeah. And, um, and in, I think in a couple of weeks time at the University of Twente, another Dutch university, um, uh, there'll, there'll be a talk coming up as well. Um, so that's all I have so far. Um, for the rest of the year next year is unknown a little bit but um yeah i don't know thank you for letting me uh mention these two these two talks too
0: well, and we will, you know, we will put all the links uh, in the bio anyway to your to your various initiatives and your book. Um, really fascinating talk and story, uh, Mindy. Um, for everybody that's going to be uh, listening to this particular episode across the the various podcasts or watching on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Doctor Mindy Howard future astronaut, founding director and lead trainer, interspace training, director of interspace training, Blue Abyss Diving, Uh, pick up uh, her book, Blast Off, Train Like an Astronaut for Success on Earth. Uh, Mindy, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us. Thanks for everything you're doing there. And and as we like to say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us via your work. Very inspiring story.
1: Pleasure. Thank you.